Hey, this is Brian. Welcome to The Aggressive Life, the place where you come not to think interesting things, not to philosophize about things, not to anal gaze. You might say navel gaze, but actually it's anal gazing what so many people do in the world of podcasts, especially in the world of Christian podcasts, especially in the world of Christian men podcasts. This is not a Christian man's podcast at all. This is a podcast for men and women who just want to get moving forward in life and not just life let life accidentally happen to them. And we're coming out of the gate hot today. You ready? Here we go. Here we go. Here's a quotation for you. Quote, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and then bid men be fruitful. These words were written in 1943 by C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers in the history of the world, a guy who served in World War I, you know, wrote Lying the Witch in the Wardrobe, all those things. And my goodness, those things could have been written yesterday. C.S. Lewis saw that we had a crisis for masculinity inside of the world and especially inside of Christendom. Shoot, even use the word masculinity anymore. It feels like we don't even use the word masculinity without attaching toxic before it. So I don't know if you're male. I don't know if you're female. I don't even know if you're confused about that. I don't know what you are, but today we're going to talk masculinity, whether you're a man or whether you're dating a man or married to a man or, or raising a future man. We've got some folks to help you out today. Do you realize that men have a life expectancy five years less than females? Men commit suicide 4X the rate of females. Men are 2X more likely to binge drink and have alcohol-related abuse incidents and death as a result of it. Men have less friends. We're experiencing record levels of mental health issues. Loneliness is the most massive epidemic sweeping across our land, and it has been for a long, long time. I, I, I work very hard to reach men. I've got a camp that I do with that, I read books with it. So when I run across a guy who's got some concepts that I think are fresh and are really, really strong, I'm like, hey, I think I will have him on my podcast. His name is Morgan Snyder. I guess I could say he's a man's man, but I don't even know. Well, I don't even know what a man's man is anymore. I'm looking at him on Zoom. He's a man's man who doesn't have any hair. <laughs> he looks like he's got some muscularity underneath his flannel. So I don't. I don't know if he's a man's man. I have no idea what that means anymore today. But we're gonna forget about terms like toxic. Morgan is aggressive about making men with chests. He's been a husband of 20 plus years. He's a father, an author, a podcaster, an entrepreneur. He gets the understanding of what the grind is, and he gets off the grid regularly away from the grind to do a little bow hunting. Maybe we'll talk hunting today. Hmm, I don't know. Welcome to The Aggressive Life, Morgan Snyder. Thanks, Brian. It's an honor. This topic could save and heal the world. So it matters. Um, It's what I most am passionate about. And uh, I'm really grateful that these listeners would risk pausing and coming to the center of a really personal topic because it affects us in every way. Masculinity restored can heal the world and masculinity broken can destroy it. And it has always been so. So what makes you, other than the fact that you are a man, what makes you so passionate about the topic of masculinity? Gender is is a very hot topic in the world. Um, and so much of it stems 
from the mishandling of power by men. And so, Brian, if you just think about it, when you look at the news and our listeners, they could get on Google today, right now, whatever day it is that they're listening, and Google the top 10 news stories and ask yourself how many of those stories are negative, and of the negative stories, how many of them are centered around the major theme of men mishandling power. And what I would suggest is the majority of the stories on any given day fundamentally are rooted in the mishandling of power by men. And so we find ourselves in a very confusing time. And for all the people that have been hurt by men, men and women alike, I have incredible compassion because there has been much harm in that area. But at the end of the day, we're made to come alive. We're made to thrive. We're made to be everything God meant when he meant us. And we, we look at the nature of reality and we uncover the core of the story in which we were born. God says this revolutionary idea, Brian. He says, I will make them in our image. That means in the image of this heroic trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so he made them male and female. He created them in his image. And so what I believe is gender is at the level of the soul. We will forever be a man or a woman. Now that's staggering to think about because our souls are eternal. Our souls don't stop at death. And our souls have a masculine or feminine nature to them. And so for me, I knew that as a boy, Brian. I knew that. The things that made me come alive were natural, intuitive, playing cowboys and Indians in the in the nature trail behind my house, right? And we, I lived in suburgatory, right? Suburgatory. <laughs> you know, like 1.2 children, like that's where I was born, right? And But outside was a little pocket of wilderness. You know, it's a par five for for modern day measurements. But for a kid, it was paradise. It was Eden. And we, we hunted werewolves and we rode bikes and we blew stuff up. There was something in the heart that came alive. And that heart, to summarize, went underground because through the initiation years and adolescence, things went sideways and there wasn't a guide to interpret. And so that masculine heart that was born wild and alive went dark in a lot of ways. So the story of my faith journey is a story of recovering God, but it's absolutely centered in the recovery of masculinity. That's a fascinating concept that our gender is maybe indicated by our genitalia, but is actually imprinted on our soul, the non-material aspect of us. That's pretty rich. Defend that, because some people would say, go ahead, talk more about that. Yeah, Dallas Willard is a really wise uh, philosopher, a a modern-day sage, and he has these fascinating statements, one of which is, truth can be tested and be found reliable. In other words, truth is what you bump into when you're wrong. Okay, so I was moving office furniture about 20 years ago at this high-rise executive office of a buddy's dad, and I never saw the glass wall that I went straight into face first. It saw me, and I blew backwards, and I was on the ground dazed, and for a week I looked more like a raccoon than a man. That wall was reality, whether I like it or not right? Truth is something we bump into when we're wrong. 
when we have a loving father, when we have a God that's personal and intimate and orchestrating a path for our restoration at the center of all things, then that's good news because we're being shepherded. We're being apprenticed as men and women into this process of initiation. And so to, to really recover the story, we have to go into design. We don't start with the fall. You don't start with everything blowing up and going sideways. If you want to recover, you start in Genesis 1 and 2. You start with what was intended. And so you look at little boys and you look at little girls and you ask, what are the distinctions and what makes them come alive? And they're very different. And we can talk about culture and we can talk about nature and nurture. And at the end of the day, with unbiased posture, if you put boys and girls in a room who have not been destroyed by the world yet, they will act very different. And in things like a girl, she will have a strong bend towards relationship. She bleeds over relationship. And in her brokenness, she will struggle with abandonment. That's very different than a man who's made to move and act, engage, and he will always battle futility and failure. You know, you started the podcast with some, some alarming statistics. Well, one fascinating statistic is the effect of a man and a woman getting fired. There are far more suicides by men getting fired huh. than women. Right? The man loses his job. It cuts right to his identity. And, and so often it's, I am a failure. I, I have failed. I am not enough. I can't make it happen. I can't come through. My strength is actually weakness. Whereas women have a stronger resiliency to, to career setbacks because they're relationally centered and they're able to bring that skill set um, much more healthy than, than most men to different environments. And so you start with kids and go there and then you have to ask, what's gone wrong? One of the things I hate about how we discourse in our culture is whenever a strong point that's really, man, really good is made, when we don't have any way to interact with it or great mental thoughts to come against it, we, we lean into the what about defense. Well, what about, what about, I mean, you just made a really, really great case there for how our souls may indicate who we are as male and female. And it is true. Any of us who have sons or daughters, they do behave differently. Now, of course, you put them in, inside that room, put a bunch of four-year-olds inside that room. I, I guess how they were parented from zero to four might affect that. But certainly there's, there's absolute consistencies. But I, I know people say, yeah, but what about, what about the, the, the girl who is just as driven and wants to climb trees? Yeah, but what about, what about the boy that is very tender and wants to hold hands? Yeah, but what about, so what about those? Just, I want, I want to get that away with, because I don't want to just deal with all the negative counterpoints, this whole thing. We need to move beyond it, but just, just hit that one real quick. Yeah, I think it's really important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, Paul says really boldly, this is Paul, who he's the man who said, act like men. Okay, if you want to discourse on masculinity, you look at Paul. And then in Thessalonians, he says, we were like a mother to you. What do you do with that? Forget a strong woman. This is a guy saying, I mothered you. Okay, God is not a problem to be solved. He's a person to draw close to, to relate to, to know. The more we grow in maturity, the more we grow in mystery. 
This isn't didactic. If you want to understand a cat, John wrote about this in The Sacred Romance. I love it. John Eldridge. He said, if you dissect the cat and pull out a liver and a stomach and you look at the paws, well, you know some things about a cat, but what do you know about a cat when it's dead? You don't know about its personality, about that coifness and its ability to, to withdraw. You have to look at the whole person. And so we're dealing with mystery. And, and so these aren't hard, fast categories. There are many factors. But what's important is, friends, does just pause and look at 95%, right? Let's start with the, with the majority, the absolute majority. And these distinctions are meant to help heal both genders. And so before we get really defensive about fringe cases, which is valid, and I'm not defending fringe cases, what I'm curious about is what we do with the vast majority and wonder what is God up to? It's a far better question than what about this? What about that? A better question is, what is God up to when he meant expressing himself as gender, as masculinity, as femininity, and to heal the world and restore all things as God intended? I want to solve that. Right. And these things of the 95% or whatever it is, they're reflective in every culture, in every time period in every corner of the globe. It's not like America in the pioneering days of the 1800s had a kind of male and then the kind of males that were over with Genghis Khan were different or the kind of males that were over. I mean, pick, 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 pick it all. These, these things are so consistent that we can't spend our time trying to explain them away because of the 5% or the 4% that don't fit those prototypes. And I think that might be part of why men are struggling. I, I don't know about you, Morgan. I, I think right now, I don't think there's been a harder culture to be a man in than current American culture. And by the way, I still think it's harder to be a woman in our culture than it is a man. I know you pro- you maybe believe the same because you already talked about that men abusing power. We're going to get into that in just a moment. What I'm saying is for our men out there that are struggling on any level, you're what's called normal because more men are struggling now than ever, ever before, because it's harder to be a man right now in culture. Let's go back and forth. You name one, I'll name one. Why is it so hard to be a man right now? Oh, it's a very, um, it's a culture of hate, right? There's an attack culture, me versus you. Mm, That's great. Um, Wow. That's deep. Okay. I I would say, here's, here's another one. Are culture is the first culture to have women out educated than men and therefore out earning men which is fine is great i wish my, my wife out earned me i'd have more guns and motorcycles <laughs> but but for men we, we don't have any role models we have no one to look at our father or grandfather had that so we feel like we're in virgin ter- territory your turn yeah another one is um it- we're in a patriarchal society. Whether we like it or not, we inherited a patriarchal society. And almost every society in human history, almost, not all, but has been patriarchal. And the problem is when men entrusted with power have done harm instead of good, the fruit has not been good. And so we live now in a reactive culture saying, screw masculinity, 
it didn't work. We don't want men in charge when that's not what the scriptures say. Men says all people are created in God's image, equal image bearers. The most important thing we can know about any human being is that they bear the image of God. And so I would say there's been much damage out of men seizing power and not stewarding it out of love on behalf of others. That's great. I'll give another one. There's something about America where men are not expected or prepared to be affectionate with one another and our lack of true male bonding, emotional yep. bonding, physical physical bonding, uh, doesn't happen here as it does in other cultures in India. When I've been in India, seeing guys, you know, just with their arms around each other in the back of a pickup truck as they're going from site to site, you know, just ho- holding right. each other, like the total foreign here. Right. True, healthy appropriate touch. And let me give you one more, Brian, that's really important in our age that goes missed. And we may even get to it. I wrote about in Becoming a King on Becoming a Generalist. We live in a very specialized culture. Something happened through the Industrial Revolution and men became specialists. We started working on parts of things. It was out of capitalism in this name, this, this march towards efficiency, right? We live in up and to the right more and more, faster and faster. That's the atmosphere of our age. Here's the fruit. When you have a guy that's really powerful in a boardroom, right? He maybe can kill it on the golf course. And then his car breaks down and he's looking under the hood, right? And then some tow truck mechanic, the tow truck driving mechanic comes up and he asks him the most terrifying question you can ask a man in that environment. What do you think's wrong with it? And he's going... I have no idea, right? Instead, he goes, oh, I think that gas be- gasket on the carburetor, maybe that ninth, cil- that ni- ninth cylinder thing is you know, misfiring. He has no idea because he feels six, right? And the problem is when you live in a culture of specializing, there are parts of the man that go to sleep. There are parts of the man that never get initiated. There are parts of the man that, never, that are atrophied, almost like muscles that are in a cast, After the bone is healed, you still have muscles that need revitalized. And so it's very important to understand so much has been outsourced in our culture. And though we've become skillful and competent specialists, what you've lost is much of what God meant when he meant masculinity, the whole man. And that causes great damage to many people. Yeah, that's another thing to look at the history of the world and the history of men. We've always fixed things. We've always built things. We've always killed things. And the average man does none of those things. And I believe if we take your theory of a masculine soul, when that soul isn't doing things that we've always done, we do feel powerless. we're, We're literally a fish out of water when all we are is in a cubicle doing good work, but never being able to know how to fix my own toilet. Yep. So let me ask you a question back, Brian. Give me an example of a moment that you felt powerful because you felt agency. You felt the ability to come through, to get something done, to fix something. And then contrast that with a moment where you felt shrinkage. You felt exposed. You felt, I am not a man. I don't know what to do. Can you just give us two examples? Uh, Okay. 
Well, uh, the first one I would say is whenever I'm out on a trail with my motorcycle or I'm overlanding with my wife and something breaks or something isn't working and I can figure out how to fix it, it's just like if I can MacGyver a solution to be able to get us back to civilization. So I've, I do feel like, so. okay, something, something, something's come alive for me. I think on the inversely, I think finances for me for the longest time is when I just felt really emasculated because I just didn't understand how to get my stuff together financially. I just didn't understand the whole investing thing. I didn't, I, I, under, I didn't get that at all. And so therefore, I would entirely avoid the topic and even not save at all because I just felt like a loser doing it. Okay, so let me, first off, thank you. That's the core of masculinity. Masculinity is always in movement. It's always engagement. It's never passive and it takes courageous authenticity. Well done. And then we reflect back to our listeners. What we're not talking about is a caricature, okay? Because you can dismiss all of this by saying you have to know how to use a tool to be a man. Like that that's just crap. That's just unhelpful. Masculinity is an essence it's that comes from the heart of God that brings part of who he is. And so your story, right? You have competency with motorcycles and competency with fixing some stuff. And like you said, you've learned a set of skills. There may be another man that is terrified of working on stuff. It has never driven a motorcycle. You named a struggle with finances where that's an area you lack initiation, you lack maturity. There may be another man that kills that, right? That he goes, oh man, I got that down and I've been saving dollar cost average and, and give, save, spend, and I'm a Dave Ramsey junkie and I got that thing nailed, right? It's not a caricature. And so we have to ask a deeper question then, where do I hide? Where do I hide? Where do I feel emasculated? Because what if God is very personal and each one of us bears God's image as gender, but even deeper, we bear God's image uniquely, some particular expression like a snowflake or a fingerprint. And so when we're recovering masculinity, we have to do it very particularly and we have to ask the question, where am I hiding and what am I afraid of and why? When you wrote your book, which is a very provocative title, Becoming a King, The Path to Restoring the Heart of Man, that's a ballsy, pun intended, that's a, that's a, that's a ballsy, a ballsy. The publisher told me it was a bad idea, don't do it. And I, I, that's one, one place I took a stand and I said, that's the title. Because they said women won't touch it. Women don't want a king. They don't want strong men because strong men are not good. And that's their experience. Bless them. That has been their experience. So yeah, it was balls. And we all know that women drive the publishing industry. 90% of all books bought, especially in the Christian world, are bought by women. I wrote a book for men called Five, Mar five Marks of Man. I have a book out right now for a devotional for guys called Move, which is right in line with what you're talking about, about not being passive. And wrote those books recognizing if I actually want to sell a lot of copies, I got to recognize the women have to buy this for their men. Right. <laughs> they got to buy it for their husband, their boyfriend, their son, or whatever. So, I mean, that's a, that's a ballsy thing to do, but it makes sense, I think, especially coming off of your earlier statement about men abusing their power being the source of so many negative headlines. So just give us your stump speech. What is a king for a man to be? What is it and why should he be it? Here's the fundamental idea behind this, Brian, is we all have a kingdom. Men and women 
We all have a kingdom. A kingdom is a realm entrusted to your care. It's where you have say. It's where what you want done is done. You and I both chose what we were going to wear today. And I like your flannel shirt. You look pretty Colorado over there. And, uh, y- you know, we chose that, right? I don't choose whether or not I have I have, I have I deer have skin to- underwear on right now. Deer skin underwear. And I'm getting some serious chaffage. Way, way to go. I don't have underwear on again. I, I gave it up a decade ago. Live simple. Travel light. So those are our choices. We have a kingdom, right? When my son turned 13, he got a cell phone. And I had two very powerful emotions when I bestowed that phone on him. Sadness. And I had excitement. Here's my sadness. My sadness was his kingdom is now going to expand beyond my borders. There are things that he can access, that he can control, and he can shape that I can't influence. And my excitement was he's on time. He is ready for this. And so I said, son, I am excited. You're on time. I give you permission to make mistakes. You will fail with this. I'm already failing with it, but we're going to learn. And we have a father that's leading us through a process. Your kingdom is expanding. That which is entrusted to your care has just got bigger. You can do this. We'll do this together. And so we all have a realm. It begins with our body, our imagination, our gifting, our talent, then extends to our dogs. We just got a puppy for the first time in our house. And so that's why I probably look really tired. But we have a puppy in our kingdom now and a couple of vehicles and financial resources and a vacation and contending with COVID. And so we all have a kingdom entrusted to our care and God's intention He built the universe around partnership. The radical invitation of the gospel is the king of kings to say to us, come and rule with me. That is to exercise my personality, my heart, my intentions to see that together all things will be restored on earth as they were intended in heaven. And so we all have a kingdom like it or not. And so a better way to get to it is how is your kingdom? How are the people and the things entrusted to your care? How's that going? That's a really um, risky question and one that everyone should give consideration to. Boy, it really builds on your previous idea of being a generalist too, because I think in history of the most potent kings uh, or queens, I I like how you say that queens have, women have kingdoms as well. I, I, I really like that a lot. When I think of in history of the ones that were the most respectable, they were ones that had enough general life experience to understand the general populace. It wouldn't be if Prince Charles ever becomes king of England. I mean, that that guy, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't have any, any generalist knowledge that is going to help England at all, right, given his background. Right. It's that generalist thing. Uh, well, you, 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 it was in your book, right? Talk the story about Benjamin Franklin and the colonists and the Iroquois uh, Indians. Oh, it's so good, right? Because uh, the Americans regarded the savages of North America, right? That was their name for the Americans, for the native Americans, the Indians that were there. And so the commissioner from Virginia uh, made known to the Indians of the Six Nation a fund was being created by the colonists to educate the youth. Right. And so they had this fund. And this is the quote that I have in Becoming a King that I just think is, is brilliant. 
It says, if the six nations would send down half a dozen of their young lads to the college, the government would take care that they should be well provided for and instructed in all the learning of the white people. The appointed Indian representative for the Confederation for the Iroquois tribe responded, our ideas of this kind of education happen not to be the same as yours. We have some experience of it. Several of our young people have formerly been brought up at the colleges of the Northern provinces, and they were instructed in all your sciences. But when they came back to our tribe, they were bad runners, ignorant of every means of living in the woods, unable to bear either cold or hunger, knew neither how to build a cabin, take a deer, kill an enemy. They spoke our language imperfectly were therefore neither fit for hunters, warriors, nor counselors. They were totally good for nothing. So we, however, not the less obliged by your kind offer, though we decline accepting it, and to show our grateful sense of it, if the gentlemen of Virginia will send us a dozen of their sons, we will take great care of their education and instruct them in all we know, and we will make men of them. <laughs> Ouch. Right. Ouch. So that's that's around the 1776 era, correct? Exactly. S- same exact thing happened at the towards the end of the slaughtering of the Indians. I don't know how up up you are on that one when when we tried to put the final stake in the heart of Indians as we wiped out 95% of all Native Americans by bringing them into schools and college. I read a book on this when they actually played football. They came into a, I can't remember what college it was, but it was basically at that thing saying, all right, we lost. We're going to come into American culture now. We're going to send our braves to be in, in an American institution. Man, the, the level of depression and the level of difficulty that those folks felt. They got fed, but it was not good at all. That was a stark reminder of the way we're doing things is not working for most men. Right. It's back to your original quote from Lewis. If we castrate the gelding and we bid them be fruitful, you can't take away the actual capacity that a man was meant to have in order that he could become a man. And so that's why simple things like a man needs real things. You know, there was this research uh, study over 10 years ago, and the world's changed a lot in 10 years, that 97% of our life in the Western world is lived in artificial environments, inside artificial environments. Right now, you're in a studio, I'm in a studio, right? We're in artificial light, artificial air, artificial things. We get a Starbucks on the way to work, right? And microwave it. It's quick. It's fast, efficient. It's not real. But that's why when we put ourselves among real things, you know, I did 28 miles off trail last week and it's an annual adventure that we take every May. And we put ourselves in some crazy places in Colorado wilderness. And what it does, Brian, is it reminds me there's a world bigger than me. It reminds me I'm not at charge, in charge. It reminds me of, of 
basic provision of food, clothing, and shelter. I, I become grateful and I, the, the most important things become central. And so every man, for example, needs to immerse himself in real things. For some men, it may be simply playing on a golf course and walking instead of driving and feeling the grass and feeling the, the, the capacity of going up a hill and moving through wet dew on a course. And so um, that's just one example of we've been removed from the real and we've been immersed in artificial. You said 28 miles off trail. You're saying you 28 miles of bushwhacking, not on an actual trail itself? Yeah, 28 miles. We One of my passions is hunting shed antlers. And May 1st is the opening season and we chase elk. And so every May 1st, I'm gone and my partner and I are off trail. And we're just going into the wildest places of wilderness left in Colorado where the elk hide out in winter and drop their antlers. And every time I find an antler, I know that king of the forest is still out there. He's growing bigger. And I'm in a place of wild. And the point is not the antlers. The point is it gets me into a place that I would not otherwise find myself. And I'll tell you a quick story. So we're up on a ridge, my hunting partner and I, and we're looking over this vast wilderness and we have just sweat together and bled together. I broke down. I started crying. And we have walked with God with each other for over 15 years in wilderness adventures. And we found ourselves praying brother to brother, shoulder to shoulder, arm on arm. It was the atmosphere of spending ourselves, of coming to the end of ourselves that actually opened up our souls and ministered to our hearts. And so I'm not trying to be overly dramatic or have bravado. Wilderness can come in any form. Most of my time, the week before, I, I took my camp chair and hid out in this little pocket of a couple trees close to my house because I only had it 30 minutes and I have kids and I have a full work schedule and I live in suburgatory. But that 30 minutes, have a cigar, sit in a camp chair, be immersed in trees, and just be with God. It heals my soul as a man. All right. All of us who live in Ohio are really pissed off at you right now. Like, <laughs> you, you, you could say all, the, all you want that you're in suburgatory, but the fact of the matter is you're in the middle of being able to get an hour to Great Wilderness, and the rest of us are jealous. You suck. Taking a quick break here to let you know that my latest book, Move, is out right now. This isn't like any other devotional book, at least none that I've read. It's full of the things I always find myself talking to guys about around the campfire or if we're having a couple beers or on the back deck. We've added 22% new content to this devotional from an, a previous version that was self-published. So even if you own the original, there's a lot of new stuff in here. Get your copy on Amazon today. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review it. It actually helps us drive new listeners to the show. I think we might have been a help to you and we want to help be a help to as many people as possible. Uh, speaking of being a help, let's get back to it. Hey, let's talk about the, I want to stand the generalist thing. I'm really, I'm really intrigued with this. Then we're going to do the lightning round. I, I want to stand this because this is so um, anti-American and I, whether you're a man or a woman, I think this generalist thing cuts to us. We have these phrases like, you know, what was it? <laughs> Jack of all trades, master of none. And that's the thing that actually sticks out to us is none. 
none, right? And so you got to be a master. You got to be a specialist. That's how you're. That's how you're a master. Is you're a specialist. So this idea of being a generalist, I find um, in the organization I run, we've got you know three hundred and three hundred seventy staff members. The best ones are the generalists. What do you mean by a generalist? What do the quote best ones have that other ones may not? Okay, so the the best ones aren't in love with their position or their job description the way it is right now. Uh, they're they're up for whatever unique challenge the organization needs. The best ones haven't made their identity what they do. They've they've made their identity a larger mission that they're willing to do anything inside of that. Um, the best ones are more flexible. When you're a generalist, you by nature you're you're flexible. Whereas you're a specialist, like no, this this is what I do. The generalists tend to be more humble as well. Um, maybe they're more humble because they they have less um, accolades because there's not one thing they nail over and over again. I, I don't know, but I'll just tell you, man. If I if I had to go restart a church today, the ten people I would take would be would be generalists. Um, they would. I, well, I'm not saying there aren't good individual things. You'd have to have a music person. You know, but you know who my music person made? It would be a person, who's, a person who says, yeah, I'm going to nail music, and I, I'm also going to help us get our small group ministry started or something like that, yeah. you know, the right. generalist. You're, you're, you're describing it of its restoration of the human person on the level of the soul, right? Because Jesus comes to do fascinating things. In this Western evangelical world, it's been whittled down to something that we call salvation, and we treat it like fire insurance. Like, at the end of this deal, we just want to make sure we don't burn. Like, and it's actually just a grotesque oversimplification of actually the life of God that's made available to us. The invitation, Paul says, we're saved and we're being saved. The invitation is an ongoing process of inner transformation that initiates and restores the whole person. And when you have a community of restored persons, then the world heals, the land heals, governments heal, business heals, schools heal. And so this idea of becoming a generalist is really central, particularly to masculine initiation. And so I would invite men to consider back to that question of where do you hide what do you fear? And I'll give you a quick example. My father grew up very poor. His dad went bankrupt. And my dad saved the family at eight years old with his change jar. He got three bus tickets, only child, two parents to go to the only living relative they have. And I, I talk about this all in Becoming a King. And so he saved the family through the money. So the, mission, the, the message to his life was, I am loved when I provide financially. Fast forward, out of poverty, he became a doctor. Because a doctor was close to his passion, biology, but that's what you do when you, to make a lot of money, right? So I'm born into a family where my dad's not around. He's not around. And so he's a hero and people talk about him being legendary, but I just know my life's going sideways. He's not around. Fast forward, I'm married. I'm a Christian. I've given my life to God. I've been saved, but I'm an uninitiated boy. And my toilet breaks in my first townhome and my wife has to go to the bathroom. And I feel about eight years old. And it's the uninitiated boy in me. So I'm staring at a toilet and I go, excuse my language, but what I felt inside is, oh shit. And I have to ask myself, what do I mean by, oh shit? And what I mean is I don't have the money to fix the toilet. And in my house, we outsource that as a kid. 
I don't know how to fix it and I can't afford a plumber. What do I do? So this is where I'm learning about becoming a son and being fathered. And I drive to Home Depot and I sit in the parking lot. And I'll never forget this day, Brian, where I said, God, I know I'm a son and I know you're a father, but I don't know you well as a father. I need fathering. It's not a broken toilet. It's fathering. And I walk into Home Depot and there's this old, kind, short little guy. And I say, my toilet's broken and my wife needs to take a leak. What do I do? And he said, son. I can help you with that. It wasn't about the toilet. It was about an area where I lacked competency, where I had fear and I pushed into it rather than avoiding it. And when I fixed that toilet, more than the toilet got fixed, part of my soul was healed as a man. And my wife, just like your wife on your overland trips, my wife has more of a man than she had at the beginning of our marriage. So... I'm going to give you some topics here and they're generalist topics. And these topics are not just physical things you do with your hands, but a wide variety of things. And I want you to give us just a couple, couple words of wisdom on them. Uh, this might be the lightning round. I've got separate questions for the lightning round, but I don't, this, this may actually be our lightning round. So I'm going to give you a topic and after you, each one, you tell me why you think it's important for man to be able to do this or understand it. Okay, here we go. Handling a tool. When you learn to use a tool, you learn that it's an extension of the man. I think every man has to have a fierce mastery over a set of tools, a set of books, and a set of weapons. Mm. All right. Handling a weapon. Talk about that. Why? A weapon is a dangerous thing. So is a cell phone. You know, um, Albert Einstein said technology is like putting a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old. And it can be dangerous for evil, or it can be dangerous for good. Handling a woman's heart with care. A woman is an entirely different creature, Brian. She doesn't want to be solved. She wants to be known. I have three women in my house, a woman dog, a woman teenager, and a woman wife. And they're all mysteries but they want to be known. And it takes real masculinity to come to them with questions and say, to know you, what do I need to know? Tell me what it's like to be around me as a man. What's my impact on you? That's real masculinity. Bringing order to chaos. Some of my favorite days are when my world is crazy and blowing up every side to go into my garage and just organize some things, organize my hunting gear, organize my tool bench, because those are the things that get neglected, right? But the message of the gospel is we were born into a world where God says, come with me and rule, bring order to chaos, that the original design wasn't chaos. There was an intended plan, a choreographed masterpiece. And God is the maestro and every one of us plays our song in the context of a symphony. And the world heals when it comes under order and that's part of our kingdom role. Plant and cultivate something living. Oh, that's so good. I think one of my mantras I live in, I live in is, Live in the day and measure in the decade. Live in the day 
and measure in the decade. We live our lives like the stock market, utterly schizophrenic. It's up, it's down, it's up. And we're all over the place because we have a, a short-term view of everything in an instant culture. Nature teaches us about reality. Nature was God's first sacred text, and you can't rush nature. When the storm comes to the tree, you find out how deep the roots go and how wide they are in the soil. And it's not until the storm comes that you know the condition of the roots. Every soul can heal when it puts itself in some way in proximity with living things. Build something physical with your own hands. Okay, I love that. I would ask every person listening, what, when's the last time you did that? When's the last time you actually used your hands to create something? My life was spinning in December after an intense year, and I had Christmas break and a little holiday, and I asked God, what do I do with this? And I'm thinking as a father, I'm thinking as a husband, I'm thinking Christmas, and he said, build bookshelves. And I said, I don't have time for bookshelves. And I'm looking at my office at stacks of books just piled up. <laughs> and I spent the next three days working with my hands, building shelves. There's no shortcuts. There's a way the grain works. There's a way a tool works. Every project requires at least four trips to Home Depot when you think <laughs> it's one. That's the nature of projects. And that's the nature of the masculine soul. And so working with your hands is a parable. It's mythic and it's a centerpiece in which God can initiate the soul of a man. Put food on the table with your own hands. You know, Otto Leopold, I write about him in Becoming a King. He, he's been a wise sage in my life. He was a conservationist in Michigan. He wasn't in Colorado. He lived on a very simple farm. But he said there are two spiritual dangers of not owning a farm. It's in thinking that food comes from the grocery and heat comes from the furnace. I read that, Brian, and I grew up in a house where food did come from the grocery and heat did come from the furnace. But I can just tell you this, the first day in my life through my initiation over 20 years, the first day that I cut firewood and I made a fire and I watched my kids play in front of it and I sat by its glow. And the first day I harvested an animal with my own hands, processed the meat and made a meal for my family. I cannot describe the feeling that happened in me, both in understanding the process of a thing, but even more providing in a material way for the sustenance of the people entrusted to my care. Again, we're not talking a caricature, but it matters more than you might think. Survive a life-threatening situation. Yeah, I, I took a beautiful class in survival after I found myself in a major survival situation. I felt about eight years old. I was in the wilderness. I was unprepared. No one had trained me. I didn't even know what I didn't know. And I came out of that and I had two directions I could go. One was to feel like a failure and avoid risk-taking and never go there again. And the other is to say, I'm a son, God's a father, and this is part of my initiation. So I found an, an old survival teacher, his name's Peter Comerfeld, brilliant, been teaching for 52 years. 
And in that, I taught, learn the basics. This isn't Bear grills. drink your pee, right? <laughs> One of my friends was assaulted in their front yard 48 hours ago in suburgatory by a raving lunatic. These things happen. Last week, when I'm in the wilderness with my partner, and I know fire, hydration, shelter, signaling, I have it. I am ready for anything, anywhere. That's Richard Rohr's translation. Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, the Peterson's translation, the message says, you are the equipment, travel light. And so make no mistake, we live in times that have a survival S to it. But when you're a wholehearted man, you can thrive and you can bring lasting love and care to others. Last one, provide basic first response medical care. Many things that we rely on are unreliable. Many things that we think are predictable are unpredictable. In a moment, everything can change. In a moment, we can be stripped of many things in which we find false trust and confidence. And so I think it's important for every person to be trained in very basic survival skills, basic first aid. We're not talking about preppers or, or over the top, but what we're talking about is what do you do when? And there's something that happens in the soul of a man when he's become the kind of man that's ready. And so in all that we're talking about today, and I know we're coming to a close, what I want to invite men and the women who love them to consider is that God is orchestrating a personal path and process of our initiation. It has, it, it, he meets a man exactly where he is at every age and every every stage to bring him into what's next. And the question for the men is, what's next for you? Well, one of the things that could be next, uh, Morgan just did a bunch of those things, fantastic. And hey, if you're hearing some of those, go to a community college and find out, look somebody up in the well, yellow pages, Google somebody, Google somebody with survival stuff or basic tool maintenance. Find something, guys and ladies, you can, you can become barely proficient in these things very, very easily. I pushed you to try that. Morgan, tell us how people could follow up with you. Where's your book? What are you? A lot of people are intrigued. So help us find you. Yeah, I'm honored to invest some time and care in your tribe. And we are just scratching the surface. And all these topics we've touched on, there's a lot more. And so I've written the book over 20 years of apprenticeship in this mission and message and have a study guide that takes you deep, a video series that's just a perfect on-ramp. There's blogs and podcasts. All of it can be found at becomingaking.com. Becomingaking.com. Morgan, very invigorating time with you. Thank you, man, for building into all of us. And I think that's about it, boys and girls. This concludes another episode of The Aggressive Life. Get out and try some of this stuff. Don't just think about these things. Try some of these things. Do some of these things. That's what being aggressive is. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.